Welcome back. This is the Making the Scene podcast. I'm your host, Eric Sippel. Um, This podcast, every time we get together, we join to discuss a movie scene. I bring on a guest. That guest chooses a scene, and we deconstruct it from any technical or performance angle we can see fit. Um, It's an excellent little bit of film school time you can have with us, and this week I am joined by my good friend and common uh, podcast nemesis, Arlo J. Wiley. How you doing, AJ? I'm good. I'm glad to hear that I, I rank as your podcast nemesis. I feel like that's that's an accomplishment. It, it's, you know, you've, re- you've earned it. I mean, after a number of really humiliating intros on your podcast, I think that you've clawed your way to the top of that list. <laughs> I'm going to put it on my resume. I, I think it's a good one. I mean, if you're looking for a, like a podcasting job, they'll, they'll definitely say, you, you, you made this, Eric, this mad. It's, it's on. Come on. <laughs> we'll see what I can do tonight. <laughs> um, so um, why don't you tell the, the audience a little bit about yourself? Um, who are you, Arlo J. Wiley, and uh, why the hell am I talking to you? I'm, I'm a man of, of many names. Uh, professionally, as you said, Eric, I'm Arlo J. Wiley. I, I suppose you're a friend. I'll allow you to call me AJ for only for the duration of this recording. <laughs> Um, I, uh, I co-host the podcast Gobbledygeek, and I have now for uh, about four years uh, with, my, with our good friend Paul Smith. Um, if you want to listen to our show where we talk about movies, TV, all sorts of pop culture stuff, uh, you can find that at gobbledygeekpodcast.com. It's also on iTunes. And uh, more recently, I've been doing a podcast called Smoke Gets in Your Ears. It's a Mad Men podcast. We're rewatching and discussing the series from the very beginning. And uh, that's also in those same places, gobbledygeekpodcast.com and on iTunes. And because I, you know, I just cannot stop pimping myself, I have one last thing to pimp. Um, Eric is actually co-editing, along with our good friend Paul, a short story anthology with me uh, called The Delhi Counter of Justice. It's about a retired superhero who opens the deli and the world around him. And that should be available uh, physically and digitally uh, fall 2014. So look forward to that. Yeah, definitely keep an eye out for that. If, if you are extremely lucky listeners, this will be playing very close to the time when the, po- the um, book comes out. And there's a lot of really great stories in that. And you should definitely check out Gobbledy Geek. Um, avoid my episodes because you've already heard my voice enough. But actually, at this point, it's pretty hard to avoid my episodes. So <laughs> It's very true. Um, they, they keep dragging me back in like The Godfather 3. So, <laughs> um, But, well, thanks for coming, AJ. I really Absolutely. appreciate you being here. This is really exciting to have you. Um, actually, uh, AJ has chosen one of my also favorite movies and favorite scenes out there, so I'm really excited to get to discuss it. We are going to be talking about Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. I feel like I should p- pronounce that differently because of the spelling, but um, <laughs> it's this one of um, Quentin, I think it's two films ago for Quentin Tarantino. Um, and it came out in 2009. It was uh, photographed. Cinematographer was Robert Richardson. And this was his last film with longtime editing partner, Sally Menke, um, which, which really makes me sad coming back to this. She was, uh, yeah. she was, uh, she was hella talented as the kids would say. Um, Anyways, um, AJ, tell us a little bit about what scene you've chosen and uh, why you chose it. 
I have chosen for us the uh, tavern sequence that takes place at the La Louisiane. Uh, I've chosen the scene because I think it. There are so many great scenes in that movie. I could have chosen a number of different scenes, but there are two scenes in that movie that are just tension masterclasses. There's the opening sequence. Uh, where uh, Hans Landa, played by the brilliant Christoph Waltz, who I got to call him brilliant now because he's not actually in the scene we'll be talking about, um, when he goes to the farm and tries to interrogate uh, the guy who's hiding the the Jews. Uh, that scene is incredibly suspenseful. I mean, it's the opening scene of the movie. You think it can't, you know, it, it won't be able to top that from there on out. But then you get to this scene a little over an hour into the movie. It's an incredibly long scene. It's about, I think, 20 minutes long, but it doesn't feel it. And I think it perfectly, the reason I chose it is because I think it encapsulates so much of what makes this movie great. It's got uh, comedy, drama, suspense, all like in rapid fire succession. And it's just brilliantly edited and put together. And it really, you know, this is something that, you know, you would teach in a film class this scene. It's really, it's Quentin Tarantino in a microcosm in a lot of ways. You get all of the little aspects that you tend to get in a larger Quentin Tarantino movie, and it's all crammed into these 20 minutes. Absolutely. Uh, I'm really glad that to do this scene, and, and as AJ noted, there's a lot of really great scenes. And this is, this is how good the tension is in this movie, that not only are the two scenes he mentioned, the one we're watching in the beginning, great tension scenes, there's actually a third scene that I always remember that is almost up, there as well, which is the scene where um, Shoshana is at at brunch or whatever with um, the sniper, and Hans Landa shows up, and you can't tell if Hans Landa knows who she is right. or not, and he's making her the pie. I mean, this is how tense. And th- I say that because I want to note how good this tavern scene is, because either one of those scenes would be the best scenes in their respective movies if it was another movie. Either one of those would be the best scene, and here those are second and third. To this scene, and yeah, th- that's and that's how good the scene we're we're going to talk about is. So I am I am extremely excited to talk about this. Um, the let, let me set the scene a little for you uh, story wise. Where we are at this point is the uh, bastards who are in uh, France at this point are trying to get into a um, a movie because they're going to try to assassinate the high command of the Nazis, and they're going to meet an actress, uh, Diane von Hammersmark, who is their contact, who's going to get them into the theater. Um, and, and in fact, this scene has one of my one of the most memorable setups, even before you get into it, where Aldo is complaining because they're going to have to be in a basement because they don't want to have to fight in the goddamn basement. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, like even before you've gotten into this scene, there's been these little cues that this is not a good idea. We're entering territory we should not be entering. Um, so, AJ, before we, we were talking before the podcast started, you, you mentioned something, which I'm, gl- I'm glad you did. Which we get into this scene by um, Hillcox, who is Fassbender's character, saying that what that there, there's not, not going to be any Germans there, so we're going to be fine. Yeah, and then the, the the very first shot of this scene is a table full of, of young, drunken German soldiers just being rowdy and celebrating the, the newborn son of one of the officers. <laughs> I mean, immediate smash cut to all these laughing Nazis. And, and it's it's disconcerting. They've got cards, like, taped to their heads, like, stuck to yeah. their heads. And it's, like, it's impossible to know what's going on and what we just walked into. Yeah, and the beer is sloshing in their glasses, spilling all over the place. And right in the middle of it all is uh, 
Bridget von Hammersmark. Bridget von Hammersmark. I'm sorry. It's Diane Kruger is the actress. It's Bridget von Hammersmark is the character. Um, I apologize. Um, yes, she's there. She, I, I know. I'm, I'm a monster. I'm already completely screwing this up. Um, uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, Hammersmark is there with their contact is here with all of these drunken Germans. Um, and you know, right off, the, one of the things I really like about the scene is how immediately it sets the mood. We get a feel for the bar. We get shots of. The, the lighting, which is low, we get shots of the... It's a very ornate-looking bar. You know, it's a very a very beautiful set. Um, and there, there are candles lining the, the tavern. In fact, the candles are in the, in the foreground of some shots, framing the action a little bit. I honestly have no idea how you don't go insane shooting a scene where there are candles and shots. <laughs> Can, I mean, just the not, – because it's not just a matter of them having to stay burning. It's that, like, the shot continuity of them not being too low. Right. I, I would hate being a PA on a scene where you have candles burning in the scene. That sounds like hell. I, you know, I had not even considered that aspect of it. Yeah, that would be a nightmare. Yeah, and, and they're all over the place in, in this scene. And, and you know, this is one of those – another a lot of the scenes we've discussed you know on this podcast so far um, have all – and it's interesting. This seems to be a, a pretty common thread in, in like great American cinema that the lighting is all very motivated by the lights in the in the scene itself. Um, which not all great lighting is like that, but it's a very it's it's I think since the seventies it's become a really common style of lighting. Keep the light low, make the light feel motivated. Have your lamps and candles in the scene, and this and this scene definitely tracks with that that style. Oh yeah, and it, and it. I think the lighting is honestly a big part of why the the scene looks so beautiful. I mean, it really does have a nice. It feels like you're underground, which obviously we said the bar is in a goddamn basement. <laughs> so it, you know, it gives you the feeling that it's subterranean, but it also just the way it lights all of the actors. It's it's really kind of beautiful. What's amazing is that it's a really inviting scene visually. It feels like a bar you'd like to be sitting in and drinking, right. and and you don't want to be anywhere near this place through the entire scene, but. But the the bar itself feels like it should be totally okay, which is very typical Quentin juxtaposition. You know, it'd be easy to make this bar lit in a way that feels ominous, but it's not. It's lit the exact opposite way. There's nothing ominous about the lighting in the scene. It doesn't overplay that side of the hand at all. Which kind of makes it more disturbing, like, <laughs> when everything goes completely wrong. Right, because it's going wrong in a place that you feel like you should be comfortable. It's It's this... This perfectly beautiful pub with you know uh, of the the iconic bartender and whose name is Eric. Whose name is Eric? I know. I, I noticed that this time. Um, <laughs> and the you know like the the very attractive barmaiden and you know like everything and the tables are beautiful and there's there's music playing and you know, everything about it is this should be a really this should be a place where you feel comfortable and you don't and I I, I think that immediately undergirds the scene with the kind of tension and and mood swings we'll get later. It really is an incredibly well-established location because this is the only scene in the movie uh, that takes place at this tavern. We never see it before or after. And it really, you know, for only being on screen for 15, 20 minutes, it really, it feels like a real place. It, it really does. And that, and that helps, you know, it, it, there's a, a, a weightiness to the scene, uh, um, like a reality. I mean, even down to the little production details, you know, and the kinds of things that movies tend to get wrong. I don't know if you noticed, but, you know, Hammer's Mark's drinking champagne the entire scene and it is the proper champagne glass for that time now we tend to use flutes but at that time period they use the flatter champagne glasses um, how about that and and you know down to that detail it's totally correct you know i mean the obvious the obvious glass details you have the big boot steins and everything but that 
that champagne glass that she's drinking at, I, I just love that it is, you know, that's that's so easy to get wrong. That's a historical detail that's just really easy to get wrong, and they get it totally Which right. is funny, given how the movie literally shoots history to pieces. Yeah, it does not at care the about end. history at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it's great. The production design on this scene just looks fantastic. And, um, and you know, wh- one thing I really like is right out of the gate, we start getting um, a lot of... Uh, the the pacing of the camera work um, settles in pretty quickly. We get a lot of the types of shots we're going to get, a mix of of close shots to people's faces as they're reacting to things, um, you know, two shots and group shots. And a lot of what I really like about the scene are is the multi-level photography going yeah. on. Um, there is so much happening in foreground background scenes in the scene. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, there's never a shot in this scene where you're not completely aware of all of the different forces on each side. Because in this scene, we have three very distinct groups of characters. We have the young, drunken German soldiers. We have uh, Von Hammersmark and the Bastards. And we have uh, Eric the bartender and his daughter. And, and unbeknownst to us, at the beginning of the scene, we also have the... the is he a major? Yes, or, major. major. We have the, we have the German major, Hellstrom in the back. Um, and there's never a shot in this scene where you're not aware of, of like when we're in the, from the POV of hammers, Mark and the bastards, we constantly are seeing Eric and his daughter in the background, or we're seeing, you know, when they're trying to be so quiet about the, you know, operation Kino and all that's going into it. We're constantly being reminded that, you know, there are these drunken German soldiers right next to them who can continue intruding on their discussion. Honestly, what it, reminded me of and i hadn't made this connection in previous viewings it really reminds me of that scene uh at the opening of pulp fiction where vincent and jules go up to uh brett's apartment because as they're interrogating brett in that scene you're always aware even though the camera is focusing a lot on you know brett and how terrified he is you're always aware from every angle of either Vincent behind him or Jules in front of him. And he really, he, you feel trapped as a viewer. And that's exactly the feeling that you get from this scene. It really is. They, they, they keep, and what's amazing is the way this, this scene modulates between um, the, the majority of times where you're really, really clear. You can see the people in the background either watching or reacting or, or doing their own thing. And then every once in a while, we'll go into shots that are extremely close where all we can see is the conversation, like when they're whispering. And then almost every time that happens, someone intrudes on the scene. Yeah. Like, we, we only ever really go in close when, when we're going to be surprised by someone jumping so we don't see them coming in. Like, very early on when they're talking and um, Wilhelm pops in to ask for her um, her autograph. You know, it's one of the few times where there's nothing in the background. We, we're, we're too close to see a background. And just then something intrudes on us. So even then, you don't even feel safe in the shots where you can't see people in the background because they're always they're always threatening to show up. Right, yeah. They're, they're, their plan is basically doomed from the very beginning of the scene. And we're constantly reminded of all of these things that, you know, they weren't planning on, that have gone. This is the bad plan to begin with. It's even worse in execution. And, you know, right from the very beginning, you don't, you don't get the sense that this is going to go very well. No, you don't know exactly what's going to go wrong or how, but you can totally tell it is because they don't get a moment to relax. There is not – they get maybe three lines of dialogue worth of their plan out before any, any moment interrupts upon them. I mean, as soon as the three bastards, uh, Hickox, Wiki, and uh, Stiglitz, as soon as they walk down the stairs, I mean, they, they, the entire scene stops to, like, stare at them. Like, <laughs> they, they were expecting to go down to the tavern. The tavern was not expecting them. 
<laughs> and that's that's a bad sign from the very beginning. You know, one of the things I really like about the photography in the scene um, with like uh, with regard to the background action is is the variety of use of background action. You know, it's pretty e- it's pretty easy to shoot a move a scene. Not that it's easy; it takes a lot of complexity. But it's one thing to shoot a scene where there's just stuff happening in the background for visual flair, right? But this scene. It, sometimes the people in the background are directly interacting with the foreground via conversation. Sometimes it's just stuff happening. Sometimes we see them watching. You know, it's yeah. there's so much variety to what's going on in those background scenes. You can't ever tune it out because it's always being used differently. And I think maybe my favorite of those uh, is the way that Tarantino shows uh, Eric, the bartender, in the background. He's a co- almost a constant presence throughout uh, this scene. And I love how you, if you watch him, you can tell that even though he appears to just be leaning on the bar reading a book, he is paying very close attention to everything that's happening in his bar. And the, he realizes, you know, something's about to happen as soon as we do. And, yeah, there's that close-up where, you know, he he reaches in and, you know, you know, uh, cocks his gun. But even before that, you can tell that he's starting to tense up. He's realizing that, that, you know, what's about to go down. Totally. It's, and it's great because it's one of those things that you probably only notice subliminally when you're watching the first time or three or four. But when you start really paying attention, you see that there's really obvious things happening in those background scenes. Um, and, and it really, they, you know, and the great thing about that is subliminal stuff increases your attention too. You don't need to notice it consciously for that to have an effect on you. Right. Um, there's there's one shot sp- that, that is just totally random, but it's not going to fit in, in the rest of our discussion, AJ. And I, w- I just want to point it out because every once in a while in a movie, there's a shot that I just think is perfect. You know, like just maybe a brief shot that is just everything that it would need to be. And it's it's in this, it's the scene right after the bastards come down and they cut to Von Hammersmark and she sort of leans back with her like to say hello to them. And, and it's this perfect old movie shot of her just yeah. like – like lean, it's like a really close shot on her and she just leans backwards at smiling. And it is like – she has her cigarette in her hand and she's blowing out smoke. It is like a pure classic cinema moment. And, yeah. it, and it, somehow that one shot gets across Von Hammer's mark more than anything. You know exactly who she is just from that one shot. And that's another thing. She's a very important character in the movie, and this is coming, I think, halfway or maybe a little more than halfway through the movie. This is the first time we meet her, and I think we only see her a couple more times, but we, we feel like we know her. And you're right. That scene absolutely establishes you know, who she is, how people you know, see her in this world. You know, She's in this dank subterranean basement. She's the movie star. And, and, and she's, I love it because she sticks out. She's so, she so doesn't belong. In this in this basement with all these drunk German um, non you know these are enlisted men too these aren't even officers she's just drinking with these random people and I think one of my notes was actually having such a famous actress as an undercover operative might not be the best strategy <laughs> I mean at least pick like the B or C level actors come on exactly exactly. Um, yeah, they, I, I, I love that. And there's one other thing about the shooting here that's interesting that, you know, that we, AJ sent me an article and I'm going to put it in the show notes. It's actually something by Sally Menke, um, the editor talking about various things and, and way they establish things. And one of the things she talked about was the difficulty of needing to establish her shoes because later down the line, the fact that she leaves a shoe in the basement becomes important. Um, and they decided to use it as an establish. It kind of goes back to establishing the character. They decided to use it early on as part of the character establishment. That here is this elegant woman with these, you know, fancy fashion shoes on in the middle of these these um, officers and those kinds of little details. Again, 
they might pass subliminally the first time through, but something about that sticks in your head. Yeah, after I uh, I read that uh, piece by Sally Minky uh, before watching this scene uh, the second time for this show, and I was on the lookout for the the, scene, the shot that she talks about where they show her shoes. Well, first of all, it surprises me that you know Tarantino wasn't willing to go way over the top on that because he's he's a noted foot uh, enthusiast. I think is the word. <laughs> Um, but it works so well in the context of this scene because as she's uh, getting up from the table with the, the young uh, German soldiers uh, to go meet with the bastards, it just very quickly cuts to her feet so quick that it's almost, you know, it's one of those subliminal things where you're not going to notice it the first time, but you still take it in as part of the scene. And it, and it feels like, you know, it feels like part like a motivation moment. Like, you know, we understand the visual language of her getting up out of the chair. When really it's doing something else right. entirely. Um, so, you know, one of the pieces that, that really establishes the mood of this scene is is the music. And this is, you know, Quentin is noted for the way he handles soundtracks. That's, that's you know, that's one of his signature things. And in fact, when I learned that, because this was the first, uh, since this he's done Django Unchained, but this was the first period piece he had done. Uh, and I was really concerned. I was like, how are you going <laughs> to, given the kind of music that Tarantino uses, how is this going to work? You know, how is he going to make a movie set in the 40s and make it believable? And it turns out, I mean, in, in this scene, you know, it, it feels very much of a piece with the time, but it turns out overall, I mean, he, you know, just he can say fuck it to, you know, what's period appropriate and it still works. But it, which is funny because this scene is actually, as much as I said this is Quentin in a microcosm, this is actually one of the few times when. He's very much about the motivation of why the music is there, yes. which he does sometimes else. And, and honestly, this this reminds me in two ways of the scene in Reservoir Dogs when um, when the torture scene um, when when they play stuck in the middle. Um, both scenes that and this scene both have very motivated music. The music is playing on a radio or on a, on a phonograph machine. But the other way is that it's it's very counterbalancing to the tone of the scene. Yet again, we have music that is. Is very jaunty German music that's playing right now during this scene. It's it's not ominous in any way, which of course makes it ominous because we're hearing jaunty German music, which we don't want to hear. Right? Yeah, it's it's the soundtrack to uh, to the you know, Wilhelm Wilhelm's party, but it's not at all the sort of music we're expecting, you know, for our characters to encounter in this scene. In in a French bar. <laughs> right, in a French bar. And if I'm correct, looking at the soundtrack here, I believe that track is on the soundtrack. And I'm not even going to pretend to be able to pronounce the title, but it's by uh, Lillian Harvey and Willie Fritch. Are, are there two songs in this scene, AJ, or just the one? I, You know, I think there's just the one because the music cuts out relatively early for the scene. You're right. You're right. And um, Which is one of the other brilliant things about the scene is that we get a song during the party and then the music stops and, and you had mentioned you know to me once that I know which I, which I don't, hadn't realized that you don't know when the music stops no matter how many times I've seen the scene I can't tell you exactly when that music cuts out at, at that moment I'm I'm engrossed in the scene as much yeah, as I because, try not to be yeah you're so in the thrall of this scene that you don't notice when the music c- uh, cuts out which makes it all the more you know jarring when we realize that the music is stopped because the guy placing the records on the record player has not replaced it and then we it introduces a whole new character who turns out to be the biggest threat of all yes this this character we didn't see that that um that 
you know, we we notice because there's a brief, there's a sudden moment of silence, and we realize the music hasn't just stopped, but the record is skipping, and that is the sound effect that we get. And then he pulls the the needle off the record, and then we are soundtrackless, more or less, for the rest of the scene. Yeah. Um, except for one thing, and there's this one very Quentin-y thing in this scene, and I'm curious for your opinion on AJ because he does this a lot. In movies, okay. and I don't know how I feel about it. And in this case, it's the scene where, while um, Major um, Major Hellstrom is talking, and we kind of like pan over to Stiglitz, and he starts remembering being whipped by the Germans, and it does this like crazy guitar musical sting thing as he flashes back to being whipped. Yeah, you're right, and that is actually from the uh, the song. It's really surprising who the artist was. It's the song "Slaughter" by Billy Preston. Yes. Which I, you know, when I finally listened to the soundtrack, I was stunned that that was from a Billy Preston song. But yeah, um, so so you're not sure how you feel about like in Kill Bill, you know, that's I think that's the most obvious example. Yeah, we're thinking every, Kill Bill. Yes. Yeah, every time she's about to go in for the kill, you know, you hear I forget the the song, but you know this intense, really loud music. So you're you're a little mixed on how that plays. Yeah, I was. I you know, Kill Bill was another one where I, I was a little mixed on it because I always felt like it was very intruding. But that Kill Bill was a was a, a a specific tonal type of movie where you just sort of got used to that kind of thing. Um, whereas in this, it's sort of like out of nowhere, and and it's weird because on one hand, it serves the purpose of drawing attention to the fact that. You know, later down the line, near the end during the gunfight, Stiglitz does something stupid, which is spend a lot of time stabbing this guy in the head when he should be shooting other people. Yeah. And this establishes in in a really important way why he's doing that, because obviously he's taking out some anger that's seething in him during the scene. So it certainly helps to be have your attention drawn to Stiglitz's anger. But on the other hand, it tonally does not fit with the rest of the scene. It is not motivated by anything else going on in the scene. I think it works because it is an intrusion, but I think it works because throughout the movie, Hugo Stiglitz has been built up as this sort of mythical uh, you know, German soldier who betrayed the Nazis, who killed, you know, I don't know how many Nazis, but a lot of Nazis before, <laughs> jo- before joining forces with the Americans. And so, I mean, and right before they, uh, right before this scene, when Hickox is talking with him, I mean, you get the sense that this guy, you know, he's sharpening his knife. He's a dangerous guy. And you almost start to wonder, given his reputation, um, why are you sending him in on this mission? He's, he's a great, uh, obviously he, he's, he's a very good killer of Nazis. And that, that's that's important, but they're not expecting any Nazis in this scene, so it's almost sort of like, why why send this guy? Because if something does go wrong, I mean, he's sure he's not going to hesitate to act, but on the other hand, he's not going to hesitate to act, and so you have that in your mind, and as you see him, you know, with Hellstrom, you know, trying to put on this friendly face, you know, how much it's really bothering him, and I love the way that uh, how we. How they how they cut out of the uh, the torture flashback is you know he's being you know lashed with this whip and then right when he's about to be lashed again instead Hellstrom you know gives him this you know friendly jaunty little <laughs> you know pat on the arm. It's it's a great it's a great moment out of that scene. You're right, and it's it's just as jarring on the way out as it was on the way in, which is which is kind of awesome um, in the way it does that. And, and this is clearly just something you know, I find that there are direct that directors a lot of times like certain stylistic things, 
And there are directors I love, but there's just this one stylistic thing that the director really enjoys that I can't quite fit into the rest of the fabric of that right. director. And I think this is Quentin's, you know, um, like Peter Jackson has his use of like step photography where it's like not slow motion, but it's obviously like, you know, multi-printed frames so that it has like a really jerky feel when it's slow motion. And it always happens at times when I don't understand why. And I think it looks ugly as hell, even though I love the rest of his direction. And Quentin does this thing sometimes where he'll just like intrude on the scene with this like blaring bit of music or something or just break the style of the scene suddenly just for a moment before coming back out and it's something he obviously loves to do it's intentional this is not an accident honestly i think i think i love that about him because even though he's clearly in control of you know his tone and everything especially in this scene i it's sort of you know every time he does it it's like i don't you know on he's again he's very in control but he also wants to remind you he doesn't give a fuck Like, he is willing to break the rules. I mean, in the earlier Hugo Stiglitz scene, you know, they're bringing out this uh, Nazi that they're going to, you know, quote-unquote interrogate. And they're just laughing, and all of a sudden, you know, Hugo Stiglitz's name comes up on the screen in huge letters. And we get this Samuel L. Jackson narrated history of Hugo Stiglitz out of nowhere. And I, I kind of love that about Tarantino, that he's never afraid to say, you know, I'll get back to what I was doing, but first I'm going to, you know, fuck with you a little bit. Well, you know, and I wonder, you know, in some ways if it works, I don't know if you've ever read, um, you know, film critic Hulk's, um his justification for why he writes the way he does. And one of the justifications is by being so incongruous, by, by choosing this bombastic style, it actually forces you to pay attention more to the details because it wakes you up. You can't space out through the entire thing and I wonder if that's part of it with a moment like this where maybe by this point you're becoming used to the flow of the scene you know where we're you know a little over halfway through the scene at this point and suddenly there's just this loud moment and if you were if you were feeling comfortable at all with the way the scene was going now you aren't anymore and I wonder if that's part of why he does it. Yeah, it very well may be. And in the, the Sally Minky piece, she does talk about how they were everyone involved in the production was very concerned about having this, you know, twenty minute long, extremely dialogue heavy scene right in the middle of the movie. And it might be a way of just you know, it, you know, if certain viewers' attentions have begun wandering, you know, it's like, you know, Tarantino snapping his fingers like, you know, you know, look up here, you know, something's about to happen. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and it brings you back to a moment. It's and, and the fact that it's so out of nowhere and the fact that it might be a little confusing because of that makes your brain start working again. Right. Because now it's like, what was, what was that about? Is, is that going to pay off somehow? And now you're paying attention again. Yep. Um, so I guess that brings us to maybe the most important piece beyond Quentin's own contributions, which is the, the editing of this. You know, Sally Menke herself, who who's... It has not an easy scene to work with here. And there is some some very very excellent editing going on to keep you focused on the scene as you go. You know, you mentioned we have three groups of characters in the first place and we are tracking all of them as this goes. Yeah. Um and uh, you said earlier this was uh Tarantino's final film with uh Sally Minky as editor because you know tragically she she passed away uh i think a year or two after this um and before we start getting into the meat of her editing um i you know i just want to talk for a second about how important 
her contributions were to not just this film, but to, I mean, she had been editing Tarantino's film since Reservoir Dogs, so for almost 20 years. And uh, earlier uh, on uh, Twitter, uh, earlier today, Scott Beggs, who is uh, the managing editor for Film School Rejects, he asked, he posed a question to his followers, what's the, the best artistic partnership of the past 100 years? And one of the first that came to mind, and not just because I knew we were about to talk about this scene, was uh, Tarantino and Minky. Because the work that they do together, I mean, we've only seen one uh, Tarantino film after her passing, Django Unchained. And I don't mean to slight that movie in any way. I love that movie. But it has a different feel to it. It's, yeah. still, a t- it's still very obviously a Tarantino movie, but the rhythms are a little different. Because the, the rhythm that he had gotten into with Minky was so, I mean, they had been at this for so long, it was fine-tuned. And it really, this movie and this scene in particular are an absolute testament to what a genius she was in the editing room. The only, the only artistic partnership in film that I can say that would hold, that is at the level of, of Menke and Tarantino, and this is how important their collaboration is, is Spielberg and Williams, I think. You know, uh, the, the film and music of, of Spielberg and John Williams together is, is the only other thing that comes to mind film-wise in terms of the it's so hard to separate them. You know, yeah. it's not just that they helped each other. Their their contributions to each other became a unit in a way that it's hard to imagine either of them, you know, producing anything remotely the same without each other. You know, I mean, it's 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 a stunning collaboration between the two of them. You know, Menke and, and Tarantino developed their language together over because she was there from the beginning. I mean, she was there from Reservoir Dogs and this is really the culmination of their partnership. This is them working at, on all cylinders. This is them knowing each other as best as they could know each other. And yeah. and like you said, it is Django Unchained feels a little different. You know, it's a different thing. And I I, I can't imagine the depth of a loss of an artistic partnership that deep. You know, I can't imagine yeah. what it was like for Tarantino to lose someone like this because it wasn't just some. It wasn't just a collaborator, a longtime collaborator. When you look at that article from Menke, th- these two obviously were were. We're working at a very deep level together. And I think it's I think it's pretty telling that Tarantino, who has never really shied away, you know, when someone asks him a question, he doesn't, you know, he'll tell you what he thinks, and he's gotten into some a little some little controversies here and there. Um, he's never publicly said anything about Minky's passing, which I think said a lot about just how close they were. Yeah, that's 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 just that's rough. You know, I I, I don't even yeah, and and. I'm I'm glad that we have at the very least a scene of this caliber um yeah. to you know as their and as part of their last their last work together because you know if someone said this is Tarantino's best scene I wouldn't argue with them. I don't know if I would say that I'd have to think about it but if anyone said they thought this is the best Tarantino scene they ever saw I wouldn't argue. I'd go Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's 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 absolutely up there. Um, um and editing is is such a crucial part of this scene because you know we're editing back and forth between you know like I said these three groups of characters and you know the 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 rhythm of the scene is so that you know you have to constantly feel like okay you know everything's okay now and then bam something something's wrong you know there there's a foreign element that is now you know stomping all over everything and editing plays a huge role in conveying that that you know ebb and flow of tension and and you know you had mentioned that there are three different groups of characters in the scene but what's 
what's even more complicated is there is no group of just two people that are having a conversation at any point in the scene. So not only are we editing between multiple groups of people, we're editing between significant groups in and of themselves. You know, at that table with Hellstrom are, what, four other people? And the same thing goes for the scene of the drunk people. And the only two people together at any given time are the bartender and the and his bar and his um his sort of waitress. And they're never talking. But the rest of the time we are editing between multiple conversants in the middle of a scene where there are multiple conversations happening all over the place. And yeah. that is that is intensely complicated. That is not an oh, easy yeah. thing to edit. And, no, and, I'm- oh, go ahead, sorry. No, I, just, I imagine it was it would have been a logistical headache. I mean, because not only are there these three groups, but they're they're not even always in the same place. Like you have the bartender and his daughter there at one point, and I don't think I'd ever consciously realized this any other time. They actually they move at one point. They move from behind the bar, and when Hammersmart gets up, they take her place and they play the game with the, the German soldiers. And at some point, you know, they have to get back over there. And I still, I haven't, I, I haven't been able to notice when they, you know, go back behind the bar. So th- there are these characters, some of whom are, are moving, like physically moving around the location. And yet it always feels of a piece. It never feels, you know, nothing is distracting. You know what? I, I'm, I'm scanning through the scene right now. And the moment they get up and go back to the bar is not surprisingly, actually when Hellstrom gets up, um, right. they're, they're at the bar, they're at the table, until the moment Hellstrom sets up, and then there are some shots where, and you can just see him in the background as they're editing about through the scene, where the bartender has sort of stood back up and is waiting, and then by the time Hellstrom has approached the bastards, he is taken watch, and as you said, he's watching the rest of the scene. And, and I think that says a lot about how he knows he knows like, even if he doesn't know that uh, the bastards are you know misrepresenting themselves lying about who they are he knows that hellstrom will is not going to be a, a fun addition to to this situation no and you get the impression that it's really only the bartender who knew that hellstrom was there I and mean, maybe the drunk people did at some point but they seem to have forgotten it entirely cuz i can't imagine you'd be acting like such buffoons with a gestapo oh, right. agent in the back um you get the feeling that the bartender is the one because <laughs> he knows as soon as Hellstrom stands up, he knows exactly what to do and yeah. he's lurking the rest of the scene. Um, and, 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 you know, one thing I think is interesting, I mean, you tell me if I'm wrong about the editing in the scene, but, and, and this is what's so astounding about this. Another movie would have maybe profoundly changed the editing pace of the scene at the point at which Hellstrom enters, but I don't feel like it does. I feel like the, the pacing of the scene that the, the cuts that it's making, you know, what it's cutting to and when remains fairly consistent through the whole scene, even after things get there. All all the variations are subtle. They're subtle variations. There's not like a yeah. big shift at the moment he walks in. Do you do you agree with me on that? You're right. I mean, there is that, you know, there's the moment, obviously, where everything stops and, you know, we, we realize Hellstrom is back there. But then once he joins the scene, it, it does go back uh, to basically the same rhythm. I mean, because he... There's another conversation. He sits down with the bastards, you know, after you know, grilling in a really tense way, grilling Hickox about his his bizarre accent. And by the way, I just have to point out, I love the way that Diane Kruger says Pitzpalu. <laughs> I I cannot replicate it, but the way she says it is adorable. So, but, but anyway, once he sits down with the bastards, you know, he wants to, you know, there's almost a little bit of a repeat of the sort of the editing style that was used. Uh, 
for the the game with Hammersmark and the drunken soldiers earlier because he wants to play this game with them now and it, it's it's sort of the same rhythm but it's taken on a different context yes exactly and we get you know the 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 only differences that you know i really notice is we get a greater selection of close in shots i think is the big difference as as we approach the end of the the scene we start getting more close shots, mostly of Hickox and and Hellstrom, um, because we, you're, you're we're we're very intensely tracking their emotions as they you know e- each one is realizing, um, you know, you know as soon as something goes wrong, you know, so we're we're sort of tracking them from feeling, you know, this this might play out okay to you know this is this is the end. Yep. Yeah, and you know, the other thing I think is interesting about the editing of this scene, and this is another one of those other things that, in my opinion, another movie would not do. But Quentin has, and this movie goes to Quentin and Menke's um, trust for each other, um, that we don't start getting scenes establishing things like guns until the moment when other characters know that the guns are there. We see um, Hellstrom's gun at the moment he cocks it. And from that point, and only from that point, do we start getting close shots at places like under the table mm-hmm. and yeah. behind the bar of Eric reaching and getting his gun. We suddenly start getting these little cut-ins of of guns being pulled. and But we never see that ahead of time. At no point does the, does the scene play its hand that there are guns in play. It's sort of almost the opposite of that famous uh, saying of Hitchcock's where, you know, he said, you know, suspense is, is not, you know, that a bomb goes off under a table. It's knowing that the bomb is there. And it's sort of, I don't know, I, I never really thought about that. You're right. We don't, obviously we know the, these people are, are soldiers. They have guns, but we're not made aware of them until, you know, the opportune time when they're brought out. And, yeah, right, and, and then suddenly the, the the very nature of the scene changes. Once the guns are out, we start seeing the guns a lot. You know, suddenly oh, yeah. it's like we it, and it's interesting because it sort of plays off that Hitchcock idea in that you know we we're pretty sure there's a bomb this entire scene. You know, we're we're fairly certain that there's a bomb. We just can't see it or hear it or know where it is, but we we know there's a bomb somewhere in that room. And then at the point at which um, we cut to that gun cocking. Suddenly, then now we're seeing the bomb under the table, you know. And we're in fact we're seeing multiple bombs. We're seeing someone's gun, and then someone else's gun, and then Eric's it just, it just gun. becomes worse and worse. You know, wor- you know, worse than you ever could have imagined. Everyone in the scene is suddenly ready for awful, awful things to happen, and it, and it starts escalating very quickly, which which I like. You know, like the editing changes, and it leads us into. A, a moment of the film, which is of the scene, which is utterly different than the rest of it, which is the actual violence once it erupts. Yeah, which is which is one of the most ludicrously quickly cut action scenes I can think of. And usually, when we talk about quick cut action, it's in a negative context. Like for as much as I love them, the Nolan Batman films, they sort of have that the sort of you know, shaky quick cut action because. You know, actual hand-to-hand fight scenes for as brilliant a filmmaker as Nolan is, they are not his forte. No. And so he does his best to hide that. And that's usually why filmmakers use that technique. Not so here. Like, the action, you know, erupts all around. And it's over very, very quickly. It probably only takes up 30 seconds or less. It seems like it goes on forever, but it probably takes up 30 seconds or less of the scene. And... I, I did something I, I've never done before with this scene. Watching it this time, I decided that every time the 
they cut they cut away during the action i was going to pause it just to see you know can you really follow everything that's going on in this you know insane hectic situation and the amazing thing is you can you can very very clearly see you know who is shooting who who is killing who you know where this character is during this you know fight why they're doing this and it's just it really is i mean the only word for it is mind blowing like it really the level of craft involved in editing this is yeah it's mind blowing it, and i i want to say it's 15 seconds that sequence see it, it feels so much longer it, it does what's amazing about it is is that so like you said the reason a lot of quick cut things in action don't work is because a lot of times they're used in action scenes where we're supposed to be following what's going on very easily. First and foremost, we're supposed to be in the scene. While in Glorious Bastards, the idea here is to communicate the the chaos of, of a battle that erupts suddenly. You know, like suddenly every bit of tension in this room explodes all at once and everyone dies all at once. So it's meant to be chaotic and hard to follow in its own way. You know, like we're not supposed to be able to enjoy the moments of violence in this scene. It's supposed to just overwhelm us. And so that's why it takes 15 seconds because we don't have enough time to mentally process it. But what, but you're right. What's amazing is, is that they aren't just cutting to random shit. It's every single shot, even though every single shot lasts maybe like half a second or a second is communicating some vital piece of information. Every single one of them. It's even though it's over in a flash, it's very elaborately choreographed really elaborately. I mean, you know, I was scrolling through it at super slow speed with this. I mean, you even see Hammer's Mark's leg get shot, which is important yeah. with the later scene. There's even a shot of that under the table. No, don't get me wrong. You have to slow the scene down to really see it, but it's there. Yeah. And, and and what's also amazing is it's not just cuts to stuff. You also get crazy things like the, like, super zoom on Stiglitz stabbing, I think, the major's head. I think it's yeah, Hellstrom. Hellstrom. Yeah, he's just stabbing the fuck out of the major's <laughs> head with his knife. Really wanting to make sure he's dead. And and so like we get like a weird, like a typical like like almost a Kill Bill style zoom on his head. Yeah. And what's also amazing is that the editing doesn't only communicate the action that's going on. It also has moments of points of view. Like we get a shot of from behind the bar with Eric, and we're actually it's not just showing us action. It gives us the view of the of the chaos from a moment that's disconnected from it. No one's paying attention to Eric at that moment. And we can and like as he lifts his gun, we get this brief point of view of the tableau of everything going on. And I love that. I mean that's like a shot that you wouldn't think to include in the middle of a chaos burst like this, but for that brief moment we're getting people's points of view on top of the chaos of it all. Yeah, it's it's just it's incredibly impressive. And I think maybe the only the only thing I could say is so you can tell how everyone in the scene dies. Like even like I was I was trying to I was trying to catch this scene in the act of not fully explaining everything. And the one uh the one bastard wiki um, I you know he he survives almost throughout that entire burst of violence. And I'm like, oh, wait, how how's he going to die? Who's going to kill him? He just you know he he killed that person. I don't think we see how he dies. And then he gets he gets at the very last second gets mowed down with gunfire by Wilhelm uh, along along with the the I can't think of what her name is. The, the I don't know, but the the bartender's daughter. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the, the, I think maybe the only thing I could say is nothing to do with the editing. Um. So Hammer's Mark is the only one who survives besides Wilhelm because she only gets shot in the leg. 
I mean, even though uh, Hellstrom, he gets shot in the balls, but obviously Stiglitz, he also stabs the fuck out of his, out of his head. <laughs> so he's definitely dead. I, I think Hickox maybe could have survived. Mr. Orange lasted the whole fucking movie with a gut shot. Do, does he, I'm not does, sure. Does, I, does Hickox only get shot in the balls? Is that it? No, I, I, I think so. I think so. I, I think I think Hickox could have survived. I could be wrong. Maybe if I go through again, I'll see something else. But going through this time, I think that's the only wound he uh, incurs. I, I do think that um, that Hellstrom shoots multiple times. Okay. I know. I'm not sure what where he hits, but that's a that's a good point. Um, that maybe uh, you're right because because uh, you I I think that beyond the the terrifying, excruciating pain of getting shot in the balls. You're primarily going to bleed out or infect yourself to death. You're not going to die immediately from that. I mean, I totally understand why he dies in this scene, because even if, you know, he technically survived from his wounds, it's not going to be very fun to just watch Michael Fassbender slowly die, you know, for no. the rest of the movie. So you can, you can watch shame for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different sort of death. <laughs> um, you know, the other thing I love about the the um, the editing and the scene and the pacing as it goes up to it is, you know, we we get this this beautifully slow moment um, of right before when when Hickox is smoking and he just gives this like, well, what are we going to do about this pickle? And then he smokes. That we find ourselves. That was an in. amazing accent, by the way, Eric. Oh no problem. I I, I um I bring the uh, the class to this podcast. Um, and then you have this thing where it's like we only have one less thing to do. What's that? And then he just goes Stiglitz, and then suddenly we're like right in. Say good. Say Alvita Zane to your Nazi balls, and the scene explodes. Like that is the that is the line that explodes it. And we just have this like it's slow, and then it's tense, and then he says Nazi balls. And yes, and, and there is nothing more Tarantino than that shit right there. <laughs> So great. Um, so, you know, it's funny. We've managed to talk for a good amount of time here without getting to the signature Quentin Tarantino thing, which is this dialogue. Um, which is not to say the dialogue isn't vital to this, but it's amazing that there's so much else going on in the scene that the dialogue almost feels like a support system instead of feeling like the entire show, which everyone acts like Tarantino because only write dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's like, a, I think, a, a common criticism of his from his detractors that you know he 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 only, you know his characters are so clever they only you know that, that's all he does he just writes this lengthy run on dialogue and even though there's a lot of dialogue in this scene i mean it's chiefly the the rhythm and the pacing uh that involves you but i mean the dialogue in this scene is still pretty top notch it, it it's the dialogue in the scene is the most beautiful magic trick possible because at no point is anyone discussing what's actually going on in the scene it's it's all bullshit. It's it's card games and talks about accent and no one is explaining what they're actually thinking at any given moment in this scene. And yet we know. Except for maybe Wilhelm. Except <laughs> which 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 gets him into into a little trouble and there's that that great bit where after Hellstrom joins the scene um, you know, Wilhelm is still just, you know, sitting there, just, you know, drunk, just like sitting there like he's part of the table and his friends sort of come in from the, from the side, and just drag him away. And it's, it's hilarious. It's like something out of an Edgar Wright movie. I mean, Tarantino really, I mean, he, I don't think he gets enough credit for how, how great of a comedy director he is. And, it, and not just, you know, people always talk about the, the comedic aspects of his dialogue, but it's not just the dialogue. It's that, that is a perfectly shot and edited moment. Of physical yeah. comedy, because they just almost like come off screen, like like you said, like an Edgar Wright thing when people will, like shove the phone in off screen. Like 
in jump two guys and grab him and yank him back. Yeah. Um, but back to the dialogue. Uh, along with the music, one of my early concerns when I heard Tarantino was doing a World War II movie, I was like, I mean, I- I've seen all of his movies a million times. I know how his characters talk. How are his characters going to talk like that in the 1940s? And I mean, he, he pulls it off, obviously. And you get great, very, uh, very Tarantino bits like uh, when Hellstrom uh, comes out, you know, and he's questioning Hickox's accent. He refers to Stiglitz as, as you know, Mister Frankfurt, and, and Wiki is Mister. I, I forget Mister Munich, other- Mister Munich, Mister Munich, and he's like, and and you, Mister, I don't know what. Like that feels very much like something Tarantino would have written in English, and you hear him pull it off in German is just. It's it's a thing of beauty. Well, that's the other thing about the scene that's amazing is, other than maybe the last two minutes of the scene, this sequence is entirely in German. Yeah. It, it, you are watching a subtitled Quentin Tarantino dialogue sequence, and you are watching it for 20 minutes. This is basically, I mean, for a good chunk of the running time, it's it's a foreign film. Yeah. Really. And I just want to point out, get on my soapbox for a second, this movie made over $100 million at the box office, U.S., so people can deal with subtitles. It, and what's amazing is this is one of those movies, like any good movie that you're watching, that you stop thinking about how you're having the conversation delivered to you. You know, I I don't know, you know been, having been away from it for so long and when I came back to it, I don't know that I remember that this scene was subtitled for its entire duration until I was watching it again. And quite frankly, I still forget it while I'm watching it, that that yeah. I'm not hearing them, that I, you know, at a certain point, your brain takes over and you just start hearing the dialogue. You know, you're not reading yeah. the dialogue anymore. You're hearing it. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the, the acting, I mean, the Tarantino has always had a way with actors because, I mean, it, not everyone, because the dialogue that he writes, the loquacious dialogue with that very particular Tarantino rhythm, uh, not everyone can pull that off. But he's always managed to get these actors who are just brilliant at delivering this dialogue. And here, he has such a great cast to work with in the whole movie, but even, you know, just, just in this scene. This is the movie that made me realize who Michael Fassbender was. I'm sure I've seen him in something before that, but for many years after this, when I would say, Michael Fassbender's in this movie coming up, and they would go, who's that? I would say, you know the tavern scene in Inglorious Bastards? That's him. This is is how I knew him. This is how powerful his performance was in the scene. I remembered him explicitly from this scene. (laughs) Yep. Like, I'm looking at his credits on uh, Wikipedia right now. I had no idea he was in 300. Uh, so Inglorious Bastards, yeah, this is the first time when I think maybe a, a lot of people sort of realized who he was for the first time. Yeah, yeah, he 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 really made an impression in a movie full of amazing actors and in a scene full of amazing acting. He He's incredible. And what I love about it is he's incredible on, on both just the fact that he's magnetic. I mean, the guy has charisma out his ass, you know. He is an incredibly charismatic actor to watch, but... He manages to pull off both this simultaneous good good at being a spy and terrible being a spy thing. Like he makes he his character's making kind of awful decisions through the course of the scene, including yelling at Wilhelm, which he never should have done. Um, but somehow Fassbender's performance encompasses all of those aspects of the character, and it never feels incongruous in any way. Like it feels like he's both very smart at this and maybe a little too impatient for his own good. And I think one of the one of the things that's surprising about this scene is how, for lack of a better word, incompetent 
the bastards seemed to be. This plan was not, it was well thought out for what it was, but they were not counting on any sort of, you know, anything not going their way. And so none of them are really prepared. And you sort of contrast that with the the first time we see uh, Michael Fassbender's character where he's talking with a... Uh, uh, Mike Myers is very strangely, you know, <laughs> made up uh, higher-ranking British officer, and you know he's very calm, collected. Seems like the height of sophistication, and then you get to this scene, and he doesn't really know. Like you get the sense that yeah, this is a guy who wrote you know some books on on film. He doesn't really know how how to strategize really or to enact this plan, and I, I that's a theme throughout the movie that these people who seem very skilled at what they do have no idea what to do when something doesn't go their way. And, and and specifically, they've been put in a situation that is not, you know, the bastards are not spies. The bastards are guerrilla fighters, which have, yeah. you know, when you're a guerrilla fighter, you have brief moments of deceiving people, but mostly to get close enough to kill them. Not not to deceive them for an extended period of time so as to extract your your contact from a room full of Nazis. And none of them are quite up for that and even even Hill Kickox he's ready to spy at the movie theater he is not ready to spy here with a Gestapo agent on his ass right. yeah he's not prepared for all of this improv I mean he has a whole backstory but he's not prepared for what he has to do with it and one, one of my favorite bits of acting in this scene is when um you know they're trying to uh, convince Hellstrom that you know he's from that you know that little village you know in the shadow of Pitspalu um and he mentions, you know, did you see the Riefenstahl film? Yeah, I was, I was in that. You saw me. I was in there with my family. And Hammersmark says, and you can see that his brother is, is much more handsome. And throughout this whole explanation, Fassbender seemed, you know, he's trying to be calm, but he's, you know, being so tense. And then when she says that, he just, you know, he turns on the charm full blast. And he just like, you know, pats her sort of dramatically on the, the arm, just goes, ah. Oh. Yeah. It's just it's it's such a simple thing, but it's so great. It, it's a it's a fantastic moment. I, I love I was that scene had stuck in my head too. I love that that little that little bit. Um, and you know the the other one of the other components in the scene is is Diane Kruger as von Hammersmark, and she's someone who I had seen in movies, and I have to be honest, I had not thought much of as an actress. You know, I had seen her in Troy and maybe one or two other things, and it's not that I didn't like her, but she had never bowled me over and in fact i remember hearing she was going to be in this and thinking really she's in a tarantino movie and holy god was i wrong because she is unbelievably good in this movie she is oh, yeah. so good in this scene she is she she is ridiculously charismatic in a way that it's impossible to fake because you have to be this amazing actress who everyone loves and seem totally natural and she does it she pulls off this, you know, old movie star glamour that you can't fake. And and it's it's magnetic in this scene. And Tarantino has sort of built his reputation on, you know, rehabilitating careers, or in the case of her, you know, maybe someone you'd never really thought, you know, thought could pull off something like this, showing that, that oh, yes, given the right material and the right director, she can basically do whatever she wants. And she really is fantastic. And another one of my just favorite little moments in the scene comes from her when uh, 
you know, Fassbender's trying to convince Hellstrom that he's intruding, that he should get up, that he should leave. And Hellstrom's like, well, I'm only intruding if the Fraulein thinks I'm intruding. And he turns to her and he's like, am I intruding? And just the way she delivers, you know, nine, she, she just goes, nine. Just like uh, the, the way, I don't know, the way she delivers it sort of underscores like the rising tension that we felt building up. And that sort of like, brings it all into focus yes it's that simple line delivery totally totally and what's amazing is you have these two phenomenal performances and yet the person who steals the scene is august deal is that the actor's name who plays hellstrom um Uh-oh. let's see I, I believe so he is yeah august deal deal i don't know i can't pronounce german names <laughs> i can't pronounce my own name um he is so good in this scene, he owns it. As soon as he walks in, suddenly he is the center of the entire scene, and he has to be. I mean, that's what the scene requires. But just because the scene requires it doesn't mean you can pull it off. And right. he, his modulation... I mean, we, you know, we had talked before about the way this scene modulates between humor and tension. How much of that is just him? I think you're right. And I, I think... Um the perfect example of that is when he's, you know, forcing them to play this game, you know, where you write down a name on a card, stick it in your head, and you have to guess who you are. Um, and he has uh, King Kong. And throughout the this whole scene, you know, he's... so Someone accidentally tips him off that the character is uh, you know, not American, but that it goes to America. And you can tell immediately that he knows... He knows what it is, and like, there's this big buildup where he's asking all these questions. You know, I come from an exotic land. Blah. I was brought over to America in chains, and then he's, he looks so proud of himself, and he he just goes, "Am I the story of slaves in America?" And they're like, "No," and he's like, "Oh, well, then I must be King Kong." <laughs> and he's just like, he just like immediately peels the card off of his forehead and throws it down. And I just I I, I love that. And, and he has. Maybe the single most important moment of the movie, and he, he sells it beautifully when um, Hickox does three incorrectly. Oh, yeah. And there's this shot. We see it, like, past the, the fingers. And you and what's amazing about his expression is that it's not just that he's realized what's going on, which is there. But I read, and maybe this is just me, but this is how complicated his reaction is. He almost seems disappointed to me. Like, he really didn't want that to be the case. He he thought these guys were 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 full of shit, but he was kind of hoping that wasn't going to be it. And and there's just so much going on in his expression in that, and that is really not easy to pull off. Interesting. I don't think I'd read it that way. I think I I took the more possibly the more simplistic reading of it that just you know throughout this whole scene he has the suspicion that they're full of shit, and then all of a sudden you know here's his proof and he can act on it. But yeah, I'm gonna have to go back and and look at his face again when. Uh, Hickox does the three to see because you may very well be right, and I think that would add a whole other dimension to his character. It's it's like a it's a very palpable moment in, the, in his face, and and I think that you know, like a lot of actor expressions, you can you can read into it what you want to read into it. Um, but what what surprises me about it is that there's a distinct change, and that's what I like about his expression because it'd be one thing if it was sort of like aha, but there's not an aha moment in his expression, which would be the boring approach to it right it's just sort of like he just gets this subtle frown it's it's very interesting when you rewatch it just look at look at his expression it's 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 just a really really phenomenal bit of acting and there's nothing harder to do than to subtly change the emotion on your face as an actor that is something that is that is advanced acting level stuff that you just have to be able to do because i 
couldn't. You know what I mean? Like I I I couldn't fake a expression if I wanted to. Um, right. And and when you can see an actor who can do that, who can without even a line of dialogue to motivate them, just their face changes. Damn it. Damn yeah. it. Yeah. And I'm glad that you mentioned uh, the, th- the the three, because that is such, you know, obviously that's an incredibly important moment in the scene. And throughout the whole movie, one of the recurring themes is, you know, the you know communication and translation or lack thereof, you know, people not being able to, to understand each other. Because this scene does have a, a button on a little epilogue where Wilhelm's the only survivor and then Aldo, you know, comes down the staircase. Um and what's interesting about uh, about that scene, and it happens several times throughout the movie, that, uh, for example, in this scene, before everything goes to hell, our POV characters are von Hammersmark and the Bastards, all of whom speak fluent German. And so all of the German dialogue is subtitled. We understand it because they understand it. But then as soon as you know all hell breaks loose, all of them die, and suddenly we're reminded that, oh yeah, Aldo's upstairs – our POV character suddenly becomes Aldo and Aldo does not understand German. He, I don't (laughs) think he understands anything but good old American. And so when Wilhelm is speaking in German, we don't get subtitles. We we're as confused as Aldo is. And that really does uh, heighten the tension. And that happens uh, several times throughout the movie when the POV characters shift. Uh, Like for example, when we're uh, uh, focusing on Shoshana, that scene you mentioned earlier where uh, she's having brunch with, with uh, the officers and Hans Landa, she has to have everything translated to her throughout the scene. So we don't uh, – we don't I, we either don't get subtitles or we get sort of a, a mix of subtitles that are it's kind of overwhelming. So that's something that I hadn't really noticed about this movie before that I think is really interesting, that every time the POV shifts – suddenly we understand more or less depending on who the POV character is. That is such an advanced level of subtitle use. Like, I, I <laughs> yes. mean, seriously, I'm, I, I I didn't even notice it um, until you brought it up. And it is that it's just amazing. I mean, it's amazing that the you know, when we talk about the, the magic of cinema, that's that's the kind of thing we're talking about. You know, like it's. You know, I mean, I'm I'm a prose writer. I'm 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 never going to denigrate, you know, the the beauty of of what happens between your brain and words on the page, but there is a special magic to cinema in that it involves so many different modes of communication at once, and so many directors, not that they don't take advantage of it. I don't think they're quite capable of thinking on every level that you need to be right. to get there. And Tarantino is a director who has a natural affinity for goddamn every single way you can communicate via film oh yeah and i think tarantino though i mean tarantino is a wildly acclaimed filmmaker i think there's still sort of that contingent of uh, film buffs who have been around ever since you know his career started who do like to downplay his abilities like you said earlier that like to focus on oh yeah he writes cool dialogue but that's all he can do and i think at this point those people are just you know they have to be like willfully blind or willfully ignorant of everything that he's doing because this movie and this scene in particular showcase what a master he is of his form how he is on top of everything he's paying attention to every detail every effect to play on the audience's emotions and it's it's really it's it's stunning to watch he he understands the totality of film you know it's not there are directors who are great at beautiful shots who are great at dialogue who are great at you know these individual components maybe a couple of individual components but there are so few directors 
out there who who speak in this language fluently and naturally in and of themselves. And when you see someone using subtitles that way, you realize you have an, a director who has just utter control over their craft. And and it's 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 a little awe-inspiring to, to see someone have that level of control over something as complicated as film. And, you know, I'm not... I'm not saying that Tarantino doesn't have, you know, other interests or other, you know, historical knowledge besides just film, but he's very clearly someone who his main point of reference is the movies. And I think that is enormously helpful to him as a filmmaker because uh, on a certain level, all of his movies are about movies. I mean, I think Inglorious Bastards is sort of explicitly about that because the, the fucking climax of the movie takes place in an exploding movie theater. Um, but it really, I think that really does help him as a filmmaker. The fact that his main point of reference for basically everything is how it relates to film. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and you know, before we we get out of the you know acting and, and before we wrap this up, I I just want to say that his depth of concern for his movies extends all the way to the background actors. Where if you watch this scene, watch the performances of the people in the background. There's not a bad actor in this scene. Every single yeah. one of those people has at least one moment where they do something kind of special that seats them as a character in a very real way. It's a table full of anonymous Nazis, and, you know, they almost... I think there's only one person there who, because his back's to us most of the scene, that I don't have a very clear idea of, but I have a clear picture of every single other person at that table, and none of them have more than a line of dialogue or two. Yeah. And and that is a, a mixture of of direction and performance and everything. Most directors would get lazy with the random girl with the Nazis who gives someone a noogie at one point. But not Tarantino. She's a character, and she has amazing acting chops, and she gets a couple of really great moments. And and she's in this movie for, like, probably, like, a total of one minute of screen time. Yeah. It's it's an accomplishment. Um, Just a really great scene. AJ, this this is a a treat to talk about this scene. I'm... It, there's just so much to to discuss, and I um, this was this was a real pleasure, man. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm I'm so glad I got to talk about about anything Tarantino related to length, but especially this. It, it's a it's a classic scene, and and you know I really I encourage anyone listening if if you know if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the the scene more than you know once or twice or whenever you rewatch the movie, just just cue it up to the scene. I'm I'm gonna hopefully the Vimeo. Um, link that I have of this that I, I use to watch a couple of times is still active when you're watching this and for a while and just watch the scene just go through it there's there's something there every moment that you rewatch it and it's 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 a really special scene of cinema and you should you know pick it apart if you care about movies because you're gonna find stuff in it um, absolutely well AJ um, thank you again for joining us um, can you tell the viewers where they can find you online to hear your um, insightful and occasionally infuriating thoughts on movies. I have so many insights and thoughts, and I'm, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm pleased to hear they infuriate you, Eric. That's really, <laughs> that's the only, that's my only mission statement. When I get out of bed every morning, I'm like, how can I infuriate Eric today? <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, if you want more of my many, many thoughts and opinions, you can follow me on Twitter at Unplugged Crazy. And again, I co-host the podcast Gobbledy Geek at uh, gobbledygeekpodcast.com and on iTunes. And uh, if you're interested, I've written for a bunch of different websites, Screen Invasion, Nerd Bastards, 
it's all out there. So there, there's there's so much of me to devour. And and please devour him and leave nothing because then I don't have to deal with it anymore. <laughs> um, I am your host. I'm Eric Sipple. You can find me on Twitter at Salon. That's S A A L O N. Um, you can go to my website, Salon Moyo. S-A-A-L-O-N-M-U-Y-O dot com. There'll be links to other episodes there. And I thank you very much for listening to the Making the Scene podcast. We will return with more scenes and more insights. So join us again. Thank you very much and have a nice day.